Well, good morning, folks. It's good to be with you this Lord's Day. If you uh, take a look in your bulletin, you'll notice that the the title for this sermon is pretty simple. I was blind, but now I see. Uh, the words are a quote from John chapter 9, verse 25 where we read, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Now, you probably notice the words come from another source, uh, a well-known hymn, Amazing Grace, penned by John Newton. And undoubtedly, when John Newton penned uh, the lyrics to that tremendous hymn, He had this specific verse in view as he reflected on his own life and his own conversion and declared, I was blind, but now I see. And certainly when we look back at the life of Newton, we see the the truth and the reality of those words. Uh, Listen to the following concerning the life of of John Newton, who lived in the 1700s. Uh, Newton's early years were disgraceful. He was a wild and angry young man who rebelled against authority at every opportunity, starting with foolish acts of disobedience against his father. Press ganged at the age of 18 into the Royal Navy, he broke its rules so recklessly that he earned himself a public flogging for desertion. Filled with bitter rage and black despair, He was torn between committing suicide and murdering his captain. Exchanged from his warship to a slave ship in Madeira, Newton became even wilder in his behavior. I was exceedingly vile, he said. I not only sinned with a high hand myself, but I made it my study to tempt and seduce others upon every occasion. Newton's next move was to work for a shore-based slave trader in Sierra Leone. He indulged in every available vice, including witchcraft. Accused of stealing, he fell foul of his employer's black mistress, a tribal princess who imprisoned him in chains, starved him, and treated him brutally. He was rescued from from a remote part of the West African coastline by a ship's captain from Liverpool. On the journey home, in the middle of a terrifying storm, he was awakened by the cry, the ship is sinking. The ship was badly holed and waterlogged. As it seemed to be going down, Newton, to his own great astonishment, began to pray, Lord, have mercy on us. After many hours of extreme peril, the storm subsided and Newton felt at peace. About this time, he said, I began to know that there is a God who answers prayer. Almost immediately, Newton stopped swearing, changed his licentious lifestyle, and started to pray and read the Bible. From that day, March 21st, 1748, until his death in 1807, he never let a year go by without recognizing in prayerful thanksgiving what he called his great turning day of conversion. Not my fault, I hope. For the last word on his legacy, 
It is hard to improve on the simple inscription he wrote for his own epitaph, now carved on his tombstone in the Olney churchyard in England. Once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, he was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. That was John Newton's summary of his journey from disgrace, from disgrace, absolute disgrace, to amazing grace. We might add, from debauchery to purity, from ignorance to knowledge, from pride to humility, from rebellion to submission, from despair to delight, from darkness to light, from blindness to sight. I was blind, but now I see. Personally, I take great encouragement uh, from the life of John Newton. I take uh, great encouragement as I reflect on that man's sinfulness, my own sinfulness, and recognize that there is no sinner beyond the reach of God's grace. How do we account for the transformation in this man's life? How do we account for this this drastic change from disgrace to amazing grace? Well, we find the answer in John chapter 9. And in John chapter 9, we have a wonderful account of God's transforming grace. It is a narrative that is well known to many of us. It is a lengthy story, 40 verses, 41 verses. But I want to read it for us this morning. I invite you to try to enter into the narrative and keep that, keep that great question in mind, in the forefront of your mind. Uh, how do we account for, tra- for, for such a transformation in the life of a sinner? How do we explain this change in someone who was riddled with sin and then became a preacher of the gospel? And look in particular, look in particular specifically for the blind man's faith as it unfurls before us. And look for the Jews' blindness and stubbornness. And look thirdly for the glory of God in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so follow along as I begin reading God's Word in John chapter 9, verse 1. As he, that is Christ, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, 
The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world. That those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Your guilt remains.
Last Sunday, uh, we looked at the first seven verses, right? And there we saw that the Lord Jesus was in Jerusalem. He's with his disciples. They're walking along. This particular individual catches the attention of the disciples. Why? Not merely because he is blind, but because he has been blind since birth. This creates a theological quagmire in the minds of the disciples. They want to know, they have a question, verse 2, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. How do we account for this man's suffering? The Lord Jesus, in his response, verse 3, takes the discussion beyond the realm of the origin of that man's suffering into the purpose of that suffering. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, here it is, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he proceeds to display the wondrous works of God. What does he do? Verse 6, he spits on the ground. He makes mud with the saliva. He anoints the man's eyes with the mud, sends him to the pool of Siloam, commanding him to wash himself in the pool. What happens? The man goes. He washes. He comes back seeing. Now, here's the question. What's the response? Enthusiastic? Excited? Overwhelmed? No, you should know by now what's coming. We saw it in chapter 5. The Lord Jesus is in Jerusalem. He heals the lame man beside the pool of Bethesda. What's the result? Opposition. John chapter 6, he takes five loaves, two fish, feeds a crowd of 5,000 men, plus women and children. What's the result? Opposition. Chapter 7, he goes up to the temple. He teaches. They cannot account for such wisdom, such knowledge. What's the result? Opposition. John chapter 8, a woman caught in adultery is brought before him. He forgives her sins, turns the tables on her accusers, the scribes and the Pharisees. What's the result? Opposition. Now here we are in chapter 9. And the Lord Jesus performs another sign, inexplicable sign, whereby he heals this man who has been blind since the day of his birth. What's the response? Oh, they all fall down on their knees and worship him. No, there is opposition, opposition. And that is what John is trying to get across to us right from the outset of Christ's public ministry as he embarks upon it in chapter 5, right through to the end of chapter 12, that the Lord Jesus came unto his own and they did not receive him. They would not touch him with a ten foot pole. They wanted nothing to do with him. Opposition at every turn, wherever he turned, whatever he said, whatever he did, the reaction was always the same. We will not have this man to rule over us. And so trace it. Trace it throughout the chapter. In your bulletin, you have an outline. It's very simple. Five points as we just trace these events, this incident as it unfolds here on the pages of Scripture. This blind man is questioned by four different groups of people. And then it culminates finally in Christ's explanation of the significance or the meaning of the entire chapter. And so just follow along as I, as I, as I uh, lay out these, these events and this incident for us. And so first of all, we see in verses 8 through 12 that the man is questioned by his neighbors. That's what we read in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, 
Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Very important for us to understand that this man is not a stranger. He is not an alien. He is not unknown to the people of Israel. This is an adult man. He has been blind for what? 30, 40, 50 years. He has not been hidden away in a closet. He has been out in public day in, day out begging. People know him. People have walked by him for years. People have listened to his cries as he has been begging for years. And people have given him pennies. They have given him food for years. They know this man. He's a neighbor. Undoubtedly, they heard the news of his birth. As their neighbors, they celebrated the birth of a son and then the, the tragedy and the magnitude of his situation became, became news and widespread that he'd been born blind. This is something that people had lived with for decades. And all of a sudden, this man is up, walking around, his sight restored. What's the reaction? What's the response? There's, there's confusion. Some say this, this is the man. Verse 9, some said it is he. Others, no, but it, it, he is, it is like him. It is so overwhelming. It is too good to be true. And what does the man keep saying right there at the end of verse 9? I am the man. And so the neighbors are convinced. They say to him, then how are your eyes opened? What's his explanation? There's a man, a man called Jesus. You've all heard of him. Here's what he did. He made mud, anointed my eyes, said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, received my sight. And their next question makes perfect sense. They want to know, where is he? Where is this man? And his reply, I do not know. The Lord Jesus has slipped away. And so on the part of his neighbors, there is amazement. There is some disbelief that a miracle has taken place initially. But they know as they interact with this man, this is a man they have known for years. A miracle has just taken place in their very presence. But now notice, the man is questioned by a second group. Beginning in verse 13. The Pharisees. And their questioning, their interrogation runs all the way through to verse 17. Verse 13, for starters, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. John cuts right to the chase, verse 14. He inserts a very important detail here to set us up for what's coming. He says, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud. And opened his eyes. And so this is going to create a problem for the Pharisees. The, these religious leaders, these so-called keepers of the law. There are some Pharisees who are, going to, who are going to buy into a very simple syllogism. The major premise of this syllogism is as follows. Only those who are from God can heal the blind. The minor syllogism is this. Christ heals the blind. The conclusion, Christ must be from God. Perhaps Nicodemus is numbered among them. Remember Nicodemus who came to the Lord Jesus by night as recorded back in John 3. 
And so there are some Pharisees, some Pharisees who have this syllogism firmly in place in their minds. Look, only God can restore sight. This man, Jesus, has just restored sight. He must be from God. But they're drowned out. Their voice is drowned out by the by the majority opinion on the part of the Pharisees who subscribe to an di- entirely different syllogism. It is as follows. Major premise. Those who are from God observe the Sabbath. Minor premise. Christ doesn't observe the Sabbath. Conclusion. Christ cannot be from God. And their voices drown out those of the other Pharisees. Look at verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. But as we move into the third section, whereby this man is now questioned by the Jews. And so this is a larger group than just the Pharisees. These are the Jewish leaders in in their entirety, whether they are Sadducees or Pharisees or scribes, undoubtedly representatives of the Sanhedrin. And we see as we begin in verse 18 that insofar as these Jews are concerned, those Pharisees who reject the Lord Jesus Christ as being from God have, have won out. And they have influenced the Jews. And so we read as they begin to question the man in verse 18. They did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them. You see, these Jews have it in for the Lord Jesus. They have already decided that they want to kill him. They have already made it known that they reject his claims. They are already prejudiced toward the Lord Jesus. And they are going to do whatever it takes to explain away this miracle. And so their first tactic is very simple. They want to try to discredit the man who claims to have been healed. They try to cast doubt upon the man's identity. And so that's what we read in verse 18. They don't believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. And so what they do is they call the man's parents. And his parents come before these Jews and they explain in verse 20, we know that this is our son and that he has been born blind. The evidence is overwhelming. And they, can, they, could, they could call countless neighbors and other individuals who can confirm the testimony of this man's parents and confirm the fact that he was indeed born blind. He had been blind for 30, 40, however many years, but now he is walking around seeing. And so the Jews know they have to change their tactics. There's no way they can continue to pursue this line of reasoning, this line of argumentation, because they're starting to look like fools. They're denying the obvious. Everyone knows this man has been healed. So they can no longer try to cast doubt upon the man's identity, thereby undermining the validity of the miracle. And so they, they, they change, they shift gears altogether. And they adopt another tactic, beginning in verse 24. 
And here they try to cast doubt upon Christ's identity. So follow along. There is this dialogue, this interrogation beginning in verse 24 and ending in verse 34. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And so we can no longer deny that you are who you say you are. We can no longer deny that you have been healed. Your parents have confirmed it. Countless neighbors and other witnesses have confirmed it and testified to it. We're not going to deny that. A miracle has truly taken place. We're on the bandwagon. We agree with it. But here's the thing. Here's what we want you to do. We want you to give glory to God. In other words, this man, Jesus, had nothing to do with your healing. Nothing to do with the restoration of your sight. It is merely a coincidence, merely a coincidence that he spat on the ground, made mud, placed that mud on your eyes, told you to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And that just at that time, as you were washing in the pool, your sight was restored. Merely coincidental. It was God who healed you. It was not this man, Jesus. He is a sinner. He does not keep the Sabbath, but we know that all who come from God keep the Sabbath. Therefore, he is not of God. Give glory. And I think that was my fault, that one. Give glory to God and deny the identity of this Lord, this, this, this Christ, this Jesus. And so we, we, we won't, we won't argue with the fact that you've been healed. But here's what we're arguing with. The source, the origin of that healing. It was not this man, Jesus. It was God. The man responds, verse 25. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. That's what you say. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. That though I was blind, now I see. The facts are the facts. There is no way under heaven this is a coincidence. How can this be a coincidence? The man spat on the ground. The man made mud. The man put it on my eyes. The man specifically told me to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. I did it. I obeyed him. I was healed. You're running around calling him a sinner. I have no comment. I don't really have an opinion on that. Here's what I know. Undeniable facts. I was blind. Now I see. And what's the Jews' response? They can't take this tactic any further. The man refuses to renounce Christ. And so verse 27, verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They've already asked him this question. The first time they interrogated him, they asked him precisely the same question, revealing that they have nowhere to go now. They don't have any other argument. They don't have any other proof. And so they're going around in circles. Their reasoning is not linear. They're grasping at straws. The man responds in verse 27. He answered them, I have told you already. And you would not listen. He's becoming bolder and bolder. Why do you want to hear it again? And now we have here perhaps one of the greatest zingers of all time. Tremendous sarcasm. Do you also want to become his disciples? 
The question implies what? Do you also want to become his disciples? It implies that so far as this man was concerned, he was publicly aligning himself with Christ. And he was publicly claiming to be, even in his his ignorance, as he was not yet clear on everything, he was aligning himself with Christ and identifying himself as a Lord's disciple. What's their response? Verse 28. They reviled him. Their, Their anger boils over. And they make this accusation. You are his disciple. But what are we? We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. They've actually shot themselves in the foot here. Because the Lord Jesus, back in John chapter 5, when he is arguing with the Jews, the scribes and Pharisees, on that occasion they make the same appeal to Moses And there the Lord Jesus tells them bluntly and plainly, if you believed Moses, you would believe me also. Why? Because Moses testified of Christ. Moses pointed to Christ. And so if they were truly disciples of Moses, they would understand that Moses pointed to a greater prophet. That Moses pointed to a Messiah, that Moses pointed to a Christ, and that the Lord Jesus was indeed the one of whom Moses had spoken. The one who Moses had pointed to. And so they make this claim not realizing that they're sealing their own fate and heaping condemnation upon themselves. And the man builds on that. The man who has been healed grasps that. And so he says in verse 30, why this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began. Has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And here this man constructs his own syllogism. God alone can perform such wondrous works. And God will only work through those who have submitted themselves to his will, those who are appointed and designated by him. Well, this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, has healed me. Therefore, therefore, this is my conclusion. This is where I stand. I can't deny it. This man must be from God. And how do they respond? Verse 34. They have nothing to say. They have no further arguments. There is nothing they can do to reason with him or counter counter what he has said. And so the response, verse 34, you are born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. That means they excommunicated him. Excommunication in that day from the temple 
from Judaism. I mean, we, we need to understand the magnitude of what has just happened to this man. A Jew. He has be, just been cut off from the religious life of the nation of Israel. Labeled an outcast. Labeled a Gentile, a heathen. Not only that, not only that, he, ha- he now falls under a social condemnation because in the Jewish mind, there is this, this connection between their religion and their culture and their society. And the ramifications for this man, not merely religious, but social, are overwhelming. He's a beggar. Meaning what? He isn't independently wealthy. On the contrary, he belongs to a poor family. He has subsisted all of these years by begging. But by virtue of his excommunication, what are the Jews doing? They are placing this man beyond the boundary of the touchables within the nation of Israel, designating him as an untouchable and making it clear that no Jew should feel any obligation whatsoever to do anything for this man. Do you understand the cost of what has just taken place? His parents understood the cost. Because when the Jews called his parents before them, they wanted nothing to do with it. What was their response? He's a man. He's old enough. Talk to him. Leave us out of it. We want nothing to do with it. Why? They were gripped with fear. Why? They knew the consequences that hung over their heads. So too did this man. And yet he will not let go of what has become abundantly clear and obvious to him. The Lord Jesus is from God, and he suffers the consequences. You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. And now there is a fourth section. And here the man is questioned not by his neighbors, not by the Pharisees, not by the Jews, but by Christ himself. Verse 35. (coughs) Jesus heard. That they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Verse 37, Jesus said to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he Worshipped him. And now this man's spiritual eyes are fully open. Now, not merely his physical sight, but his spiritual sight has been fully restored. And here he makes a most wonderful proclamation of faith. Lord, a divine title, I believe. And now an action ascribing deity He worshipped him. And here we see in practice what John declares in the 20th chapter, verse 31, where he makes plain his purpose in writing this book. These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so this man has seen a sign. He has experienced a sign 
But that isn't where he has left it. The Spirit of God has worked upon his soul. And his spiritual eyes have been opened whereby he has perceived the significance of his physical healing, the significance of this sign that he finds himself in the presence of the Christ, the one who is God's anointed, the one who is God's prophet, priest, and king, the one of whom the Old Testament prophets foretold. He finds himself in the presence of the promised Messiah. And not only that, he understands that this promised Messiah is the Lord. He is the Son of God. And so he bows down and he worships Him. And then the Lord Jesus, in the concluding verses, provides His commentary, or explanation, if you like, of the entire chapter. And so He states in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world. Now that might strike us as odd, especially as we think back to John 3.17, where the Lord Jesus says, I have not come into this world to judge it. I have not come to condemn the world. How do we reconcile this? When John 3.17, when the Lord Jesus says, I have not come to judge, I have not come to condemn, what he means is simply this, that his first advent was not the appointed hour whereby he would implement judgment, pass judgment. That is reserved for a future date. But the Lord Jesus here in John 9 is simply making it plain to all that His very presence is a judgment. Why? Because it forces people to choose. It forces people to either align themselves with Him or reject Him. It forces people to believe in Him or not to believe in Him. No one can remain neutral. No room for neutrality. For judgment, I came into this world. And your response, your reaction to me judges you. It reveals who you are. Two possibilities. That those who do not see may see. In other words, that those who are spiritually blind and acknowledge that they are spiritually blind because of their sin, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will see, their sight will be restored. But in marked contrast, that those who see, that is those who claim to see, and are blinded by their sin, refuse to acknowledge their sin, refuse to believe that Jesus is indeed the Lord, the Son of God, that they might be confirmed in their blindness. Basically, what we have in John chapter 9 is an account of both reactions, don't we? We have the blind man, one who did not see, and yet by God's grace, his eyes were opened. And in contrast, we have the Jews, those who claimed to see. And because of their unwillingness to acknowledge their sinfulness and to acknowledge Christ as Lord, were confirmed and left in their blindness. Now, what should we take from that this morning? As we read a chapter like that, a a narrative, and as we we trace these these parallels between the, the blind man over here and the Jews over here, 
of what would the Spirit of God teach us. And I want to affirm five truths, five lessons this morning based on these verses. And I trust the Spirit of God will speak to our hearts and apply it to each one according to our need this morning. The first truth is this, the danger of formalism. As we read this chapter, we should be struck with the danger of formalism. Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. In John chapter 5, the Lord Jesus heals the lame man on what day of the week? The Sabbath. And the Jews worked themselves into a frenzy. Here we are again. The Lord Jesus heals a blind man on what day of the week? The Sabbath. And the Jews pick right up where they left off. The Jews have created these man-made laws and regulations governing the Sabbath. And insofar as they are concerned, the Lord Jesus has broken the Sabbath. But as we go back and we read the Old Testament and those laws governing the Jews' observance of the Sabbath, we discover the Lord Jesus hasn't broken anything. The Lord Jesus hasn't broken one solitary commandment. What the Lord Jesus has done is He has shown utter contempt for the Jews' man-made rituals and ceremonies and laws and traditions added to the Sabbath. And so one commentator writes in this regard, a man is out walking. He spits. Does that work? It depends on what happens to the spit. If it goes into the dirt and makes a slight furrow, then it is plowing, which is work. If it hits a rock, no work is done. Under this system, being a devout Jew seemed to depend in part on where one spit on Saturday. They are overwhelmed by formalism. They are trusting in their system of self-righteousness. Trusting in this list of do's and don'ts that has been created over generations and generations. The Lord Jesus dares to come along and shows complete disregard for their man-made traditions. Not only complete disregard, what does he do when he heals this blind man? He purposefully does what? Spits on the ground. You think he isn't looking for a fight? He purposefully makes mud with that saliva. He purposefully places that mud on the blind man's eyes. He purposefully tells that blind man to now go to the pool of Siloam and wash himself. What is the Lord Jesus doing? He is provoking the Jews. He is stirring the pot. He is causing them to come face to face with their dead ritualism. And face to face with this ladder of self-righteousness which they have constructed for themselves, which they have rested their faith upon, all the, all the while missing the most important thing. All the while claiming or holding to a form of godliness while denying its power. How many people in Christendom do exactly that today? They got a list of do's and don'ts. Things they don't do, things they do. 
fairly regular church attendance, fairly regular tithing, avoiding this, avoiding that. And therein lies the extent of their faith and their religious experience. Oh, the danger, friends, the danger formalism. What is it that Christ requires of us? He made it very clear on that night in which he spoke to Nicodemus. You must be born again. He is not looking for external ritual. He couldn't care less about what we think we do to please him. He is looking for a new birth, a new heart, and a heart that loves him and expresses that love in obedience. The second great truth that emerges from this narrative is as follows. The evidence of blindness. How do you know if someone is spiritually blind? Look at verse 41. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, in other words, if you would acknowledge your blindness, if you would acknowledge your ineptitude, if you would confess your sin, you would have no guilt. See, there's where salvation is found. But here's your problem. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. You see, blindness always manifests itself in pride and unwillingness to acknowledge sin. The first step in salvation is what? It is repentance. Repentance from what? Sin. And where there is no acknowledgement of our utter sinfulness, there is no repentance. There is no faith. There is no salvation. The Lord Jesus makes that clear in the 41st verse. The evidence of blindness. The evidence of blindness is this self-confidence, this self-assurance that we see. And yet that is what? It is the cry of self-righteousness. And the Lord Jesus makes it clear, your guilt remains. The third truth is this, the importance of opposition. That may sound odd, but it is extremely important. The importance of opposition. Look firstly at verse 17. So they, that is the Pharisees, said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? What's his response? Well, I don't know too much. Here's the best I can come up with. He must at least be a prophet. Right? I was blind. Now I see. He sent me to the pool of Siloam. You want to know what I think about him? I haven't, to be honest, I haven't a lot, a lot of time to process this. He must be some kind of prophet. Now look at verse 24. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now look at his response. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. There's still this uncertainty as to who the Lord Jesus Christ is, as to the Pharisees, the Jews, opposition. But here's his certainty. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. No, there must be something special about this man. And now look at the 29th verse, the cry of the Jews. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And now how does the man respond? Look at his boldness. Look at his confidence. Why, this is an amazing thing. And it culminates in his cry. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. How is this man brought? 
from simply recognizing the Lord Jesus as a mere man, a prophet, to the point where he declares publicly before those men who are able to cast him out of the temple, how does he come to this point where he is able to declare the Lord Jesus is from God? What is God who opens his eyes? But what is it that God uses to cultivate this man's faith? It is opposition. It is in the face of the Jews' opposition. It is in the heat of battle. It is in the face of, of this confrontation, wave after wave of this interrogation, that the Spirit of God works in this man's soul. And he begins to think about things. He begins to process all this information and what has happened. He begins to reason. His reasoning is sanctified. And he comes to this overwhelming conclusion that Christ is indeed from God. And how important that is for us, brothers and sisters. We, we go through opposition. Whether it be from unsafe family members or friends or whatever the nature of the opposition. And at times we stand around staring at one another, wondering what's going on. But be certain of this one great undeniable truth. God uses opposition to strengthen, to cultivate our faith. The church throughout her history has always been at her finest when in the face of opposition. You look at the creeds and you look at the concise articulation of doctrine. And you look at the great men and women of faith that have colored the history of the church. It has always been provoked through opposition in the hand of God himself. What a great encouragement to us. A great encouragement to persevere and understand that God has a hand in it. The fourth lesson is this, the cost of discipleship. Verse 34, they answered him. You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Following Christ cost him everything. Reminds me of Christ's own words in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, Following Christ is not for the faint of heart. Following Christ implies self-denial. Laying our wants aside. Following Christ means taking up our cross, a life of opposition and persecution. Following Christ means laying aside all of our own dreams and aspirations and submitting ourselves to His will for us. James Montgomery Boyce writes, For the genuine Christian, discipleship means forsaking everything to follow Christ. But for many of today's supposed Christians, perhaps the majority, It is the case that while there is much talk about Christ and even much furious activity that is supposed to be done in his name, there is actually very little following of Christ himself. And that may mean that in some circles, at least, there is very little genuine Christianity. What a call for me to examine myself. Am I a true follower of Christ? Am I a disciple of Christ? Have I denied myself, taken up my cross, To follow Him. And the fifth and final lesson, and perhaps the most important, is this. The miracle of faith. Verse 11. 
He answered, that is the blind man answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Who is Christ? He's a man called Jesus. Verse 17 again. So they said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. There's been some movement here. Not merely a man named Jesus, but a prophet. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Not merely a man named Jesus, not merely a prophet, but a man from God himself. And then it culminates in verse 38. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. From a mere, who is Christ? A mere man, a man named Jesus. To he is the Lord. The sovereign of creation, the great I am. Just as the Lord Jesus had opened his physical eyes, restoring his physical sight, so too he has opened his spiritual eyes, restoring his spiritual sight, so that this man beholds the glory of God in the face of Christ. In a few moments, we're going to sing Newton's well-known hymn, Amazing Grace. And I would ask you, as we sing that well-known hymn, and as we sing those words, which have almost become part of the American psyche, that we merely will not be merely reciting something we have recited and sung on so many occasions before, but that we will truly listen to the words, ponder the words, take the words to heart. And ask ourselves in all honesty and with all sincerity, can we say, I was blind, but now I see.